Welcome to Thoughts from Home, your conservation podcast from the National Conservation Training Center. We're located along the Potomac River in historic Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and are home to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Throughout this series, we'll be talking with experts, authors, and a variety of other guests to bring you the most up-to-date information, events, and happenings here at the National Conservation Training Center. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. My name is Katherine Woodward, and I work at the National Conservation Training Center as a fish and wildlife biologist, and today I am joined by our NCTC podcast team, Jim Siegel, Mike McAllister, and Roxanne May, to talk about creepy crawly misunderstood wildlife on this chilly autumn day. So October and November, they're a beautiful time when the days get shorter, the leaves turn to warm hues, the fog rolls in to stay through the morning, and the harvest moon hangs bright in the night sky and the critters come out. Most of the time, people can go day to day paying no attention to the wildlife around them. And maybe they have a serious fear or phobia of certain species, but we wanna draw attention to some important ecological services of multiple animals that you're perhaps more familiar with from a close encounter driving down a country road, having found them lurking in your garage, messing with garbage cans, or trying to hibernate the winter away in your attic. So there's many animals out there that get a bad rep. Maybe they're less charismatic and more mysterious. Maybe they're mostly misunderstood. Spiders, bats, raccoons, possums, skunks, and so many more critters that are often characterized as creepy, crawly, and maligned are underappreciated, underrated, and we're here to shed some positive light on their many benefits to us and to our personal property, like how they help manage pests in our yards, our gardens, in homes and more broadly in our entire ecosystem. So the first one on our list is spiders and I know I have a fear of spiders so we're going to talk about spiders first and does anybody have any spider stories? I've woke up in the middle of the night before and there's been a spider in my bed. I've had them running through the house and my golden retriever chases them and eats them you know but overall I have a huge fear of spiders. I mean is that realistic to be scared of them that way? Are they really creepy crawly nasty things or are they pretty cool? Yeah so the name for the fear of spiders is definitely what I have and I'm arachnophobic. (laughs) Me too. I have to admit I'm on the I'm scared by spiders too. So what about you, Mike or Jim? I do my best to tolerate, this is Mike. I do my best to tolerate spiders. I used to be terrified of them and would definitely change my pattern in life. But I I, I realize I can't get away from them and I I try to accept them. (laughs) I do my best. I, I don't have any great spider stories except that I once lived in Arizona and there seemed to be a black widow in every shed that I ever entered. They were, black widow spiders were so common, both in Arizona and California, another state that I've lived, that it was amazing how many poisonous spiders there were in that environment, yet I never saw them in other parts of the country. Do you just like check your boots and check everything before stepping, like just to keep your eye out for the black widow or whatever? It was mostly like uh, dealing with the, you know, the mops in the corner of the shed or or the tent poles. That was just a great place to see black widow spiders in California and Arizona. Can they hurt you? Do they inject venom or anything like that? What what do they do? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about it. I think that many, you know, there are a couple of species of spiders 
in the United States that are, are poisonous, the brown recluse and the black widow. There are a few other kinds of widow spiders. Those are, are two of the spiders that are poisonous. Most spiders are not poisonous. And we have, you know, something like thousands of different species of spiders in the United States, yet very, very few of them, the two species I mentioned, are actually poisonous. And it's very difficult to be bitten by a spider. It's interesting to note that in the medical records, many times, more than three quarters of the time, when people say I've been bitten by a spider, medical science shows that they have not been bitten by a spider. They've been bitten by some other thing, some other insect or some other animal, and it's not, they're not being bitten by a spider. But spiders do have venom in them. That venom is used because they're a predator on insects. And so they have fangs in which they inject enzymes into their insect prey, kind of dissolving them from inside out. And a few kind of spiders grind up their prey, their insect prey, and then they put insect enzymes into that mass of insect flesh to liquefy it. And so they have a very interesting way of digesting their food, but they eat an enormous amount of insects something like 14 times their weight in insects during their lives, which would be like a normal sized person eating 14 pounds of food a day. So they're incredible consumers of insects. And that's an important role that they play in our environment, in our gardens, in our yards, and occasionally right in our homes. They are feeding on the insects that are loose in our homes. I think it's funny how you hit on many alleged cases of people getting bitten and they think that it's a spider. So that just goes to show that people don't like spiders and they immediately jump the gun and think it's a spider bite, but it's probably many other insects. Right. Occasionally it is a spider bite, but that's not the norm. You know, three quarters of the time when you think you've been bitten by a spider, you've been bitten by something else. What are the most common spiders that we typically see, like in our house or crawling around? Well, you know, in our house, I don't know what the, the common spiders are, but we have a lot of different kinds of garden spiders, which make those huge webs that you see as you walk through the woods or through your garden. There's a lot of different kinds of jumping spiders, which you often see on, you know, window panes and on on the sides of walls, and they're tiny, very furry spiders. There's a lot of different kinds of wolf spiders, which are uh, some of the spiders that you see on lawns that make like a grassy tube-like shape. You know, there's so many different kinds of spiders, but I think the most typical ones that we see are different kinds of garden spiders, which are orb-weaving spiders that make enormous webs, and you often see those in your garden. They're, they're among the most common. They're green and black. Some of them are kind of yellow in color. If you spend a lot of time in gardens, you will find a lot of different kinds of spiders. Now, Jim, can you tell us about like how a spider makes its web or about like the spider silk? Yeah. Well, the, the silk is an incredible, they, they weave their silk from their abdomen. And if you see a spider laying silk, 
they use their legs to lay it in various shapes and in various conformations. It's an incredible substance. It's among the most strongest of the materials that a, a living thing can ever produce. And it's one of the most powerful substances. And because of its value of the strength of the fiber, we are starting to think about ways of putting the genes to make spider silk in other animals, such as goats. And so the, the silk would come up in their milk. Or if we put the gene for spiders in various plants, the gene for the spider silk would make the leaves stronger and the fibers could be harvested from the leaves of the plants. But this is obviously a genetic engineering process of embedding spider silk genes in other organisms and not harvesting it necessarily from the spiders themselves. Now, Mike, as you're maintaining NCTC's property, do you come alongside like spider webs and as you're cleaning the eaves and stuff, do you come across a lot of spiders and have to deal with them? Yeah, spiders are very prevalent on campus. We can clean the eaves off if we have a project under the buildings and by the next day, it doesn't even look like we've done anything. They, they are hardy builders running the trails or working on doing trail work. I don't know how they cast their silk across the trail, but there'll be a there'll be a spider smaller than my fingernail and it'll have a four foot web across a trail and you run through it and then you get to party with it because it's crawling all over you trying to get off of it, trying to get off of you. And uh, by the time you get you know back to the shop, you're covered in them. And uh, it's incredible because you can feel the spider web actually like pull in your face and like the tensile strength and then it breaks. Um, it, it's quite a unique fiber for sure. I was wondering, Jim, do spiders recycle their silk or do they eat it or where does it go? Do they make a new web all the time? You know, I think that they have to make new webs each time. They don't okay. recycle it. It is a, a fiber that's coming from their body, right? And so that they're not able to gather it up again like you gathering wool in a ball and use it over again. But they are able to adjust it sometimes and repair it. And yeah. you can see them doing that, that they're able to build on their existing webs and sometimes improve them and, and repair them. But they have to make that silk anew to create more silk as opposed to gathering up old silk and, you know, relaying it out. Yeah. Okay. You know, that's interesting that you brought that up, Mike, about walking through the trails because I'm a big hiker. So you never want to be the first in the line because you get all this. <laughs> You know, you're walking to sick or something. Air, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of curious about this, Jim. How do they jump from one spot to the other? Because some of it is like really far. You know, they can't fly. They don't have wings. They have eight legs. They don't have wings. But and typically they're able to get there by being blown over there in the wind. So remember when they're hanging down, they get projected in various directions. And by doing that, they bridge the gaps. And as soon as they bridge the gap once, it's like having a cable over the bridge. They're able to start building the thing, but they don't spray or, or do some giant leap, but they're mostly being blown by the wind. Interesting. So let's move on to our second animal. That was great conversation and spiders are pretty cool actually. So. This animal is a classic spooky one that hangs upside down. It, it is the bat. 
there's a widespread misconception that all bats feed on blood. And maybe one reason these animals are undervalued. Do bats feed on blood and do we have to worry about them eating our blood? <laughs> I would say that in North America, that's something you don't have to worry about. But if you lived in Peru or if you lived in Brazil, there are a few species of vampire bats. The lucky thing is that there are many species of bats in the world that are not blood feeding. The vampire bats are the only, and they're only found in the new world. So there are no vampire bats in the old world, in Europe and Asia and Africa. There's none there. Okay. Um, what do most of the bats here in North America eat? Almost, except for a, a couple of species down in the Southwest, all of our bats in North America are insect-eating bats. That's the only thing that they're eating. And they eat everything from beetles and moths to flies, uh, are the common foods of their of bats and bugs, and typically flying insects. And they're very, very valuable to the ecology. They are a major predator of insects in the evening. Birds and, and other things eat insects during the day, but at nighttime, the bats are the major predator of flying insects. Yeah, it's really cool in the summertime where you can see the bats swooping at night and it's really neat. Um, I've heard that they can even eat stink bugs. Is that pretty common? part of their diet? So if stink bugs are flying about, then it would be, but stink bugs aren't terrific flyers, though they can fly fairly well. More likely, they're eating other kinds of, of insects like flying beetles, moths, flies. Those are the common things that bats are eating. In some places, the bats are so abundant that they show up on the radar. And so that gives you some idea of how much insects those bats are eating each night. It's tons and tons and tons of insects that they are feeding on each night. Now you talked about the vampire bats. So why do the bats hang upside down in their classic way? <laughs> you know, if you look at a bat's feet, the, the feet are very small and weak. The part of the bat that is the most evolved and the most powerful are its wings, which are actually evolved from hands. So these are the spread fingers of the bat and the webbing between them is what you know as a bat's wing is a hand with the webbing between the fingers. And so that's the most powerful organ, you know, physical organ and extremity of the bat are its wings. Its feet are actually kind of weak and small and weak. And so those things are only used, they can't support the weight of the animal like, like your legs. And so the, the bat can't sit up like a human being or like a horse. It's not able to, to stand high on its legs. And so that's why it's hanging upside down. So how do bats move around in the dark? Bats have an incredible feature, which is they make high-pitched noises, which many times are unable to hear them, and they echolocate. 
the sound bouncing off of the environment and the objects in the environment means that they see through echolocation. So they actually have fairly good eyesight, but that's not the main way that they're flying through the environment. It's by bouncing sound off of objects and hearing the shape and the size and the location of these objects through echolocation. It's like sonar for a boat. It's really kind of cool, you know, when you think about bats. I see them a lot at night and I grew up with a pool. So we saw bats all the time. We would be swimming and they would dive down at us. You know, of course, we were kids. We were freaking out, you know. But do they always live close to water or where do they live? You know what? They don't always use close to water, but if they need to drink, they will do what you saw at the pool. Bats live in any place where there's a lot of flying insects. So they don't have to necessarily live close to water, but oftentimes water environments like here where we live on the Potomac, there's a lot of hatching flying insects coming off of the water. And so that's the bats are not only taking advantage of to be able to drink, but they're catching all the mayflies and the horse flies and other kinds of flies that may be hatching out in the river, in the river bottoms, where there's a lot of insects are, are, are being hatched out. And that's why you're seeing them down by the river. Now, Jim, so the, the bats seem like they have a very unique place in the animal kingdom. So they can fly, but they're also mammals. So like what category are they in? They're in their own order of mammals called the Chiroptera. And that is the most closely related to shrews and moles as the their most closely related mammal uh, group. They're in their own order of flying, flying mammals. Another important function that we haven't hit on yet is how bats are pollinators. Can you talk a little bit about that, Jim? Yes, there are a couple of species in the Southwest which are long-nosed and long-tongued bats, which pollinate various kinds of cactus and a few other kinds of plants. And these long-nosed bats and long-tongued bats, their main food is pollen and nectar that they're getting from these cactuses like saguaro and a few others. And they're able to gather with their long snout and their long tongues and gather almost like a, like a hummingbird. They also eat some insects, but mostly they're eating uh, the pollen and nectar from flowers. And then sometimes they're eating the fruit that are of, of those same kinds of cactus plants, but they're mostly eating pollen and, and nectar. So bats are you know, night flying insects, they pollinate flowers, they're scattering the seeds. Um, we don't have to worry about them sucking our blood like vampire bats, so they're not in our area. Thanks, Jim and everybody for talking about bats. Now we can have a greater appreciation for their role in our environment. So next on our list is raccoons, the cute little raccoons. I'm a fan of raccoons. I love raccoons. <laughs> you know, until they're in my yard. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. My dad actually had a pet raccoon for the longest time until it like 
was growing to be or it was having bad behaviors. But he had a fat raccoon, which is really cool. I love telling people that. They are cute. You know, raccoons are a classic omnivorous mammal, you know, medium size. They eat an enormous amount of a lot of different things. They eat quite a lot of crayfish. They eat quite a lot of vegetable matter, particularly wild fruits. Uh, they do eat some grain, such as corn, but they eat, you know, some wild grains. They eat a lot of mice and other small animals. So they're an important predator on things like that. And interesting enough, one of the, the values that they have in gardens are a major predator on wasp nests. So a yellow jacket nest in the ground, they will break into, into the nest and eat the larva out of the yellow jacket's nest, therefore controlling the number of wasps in our environment. That's an important role that raccoons play. And that's not a very well-known trait they have. You know, we, we think of them eating the cat food, you know, that we leave out on the porch. And they certainly do eat those things. But the major things that they eat are things like mice and crayfish and a lot of different kinds of fruit such as the fruit of, you know, wild raspberries and blackberries and other kinds of fruiting shrubs and trees. Uh, raccoons eat that a lot. Unfortunately, they also eat a lot of garden plants, but their value is an important predator and they also eat carrion. So they do clean up carcasses in our environment, you know, so they're valuable in that way as well. Hey, Jim, uh, raccoons seem oddly smart. Is it, am I just observing that or are they like proven to be wise critters? Raccoons have, are very coordinated. Uh, you can see them when you, you see them manipulate their food. Sometimes they wash their food in water and they're often living near water and they are very able to open, you know, containers and, and things like that showing a lot of dexterity. And I think that that's, that's why you think of them as intelligent. And I think they're, they are as intelligent as, as things like a dog or a cat. They're as intelligent as a lot of other kinds of predatory animals. I have a question. So Jim, do raccoons kind of like do things solo or do they like stick with a group? I don't even know what their behavior is um, with other raccoons. You know, when, when people feed raccoons, it's even amazing how many raccoons might show up on your porch. But typically, they lead largely solitary lives and they move through the environment, usually by themselves. But they do come together, obviously, to mate. And the, the babies stay with their mother for many months after they leave a nest site like a hole in a tree or a, a hole in a log and so they're following their mother around for a number of months and then you know by winter time they're on their own so that you know they grow up pretty quickly but they're generally solitary animals in their normal state of wandering in the environment they're by themselves now, what's your advice to somebody who has like a problem with raccoons around their yard or getting into their garage or something like that? 
You know, obviously the most important thing that is to not leave out a lot of pet food for raccoons and to get garbage cans with strongly attached lids, that's important. You do sometimes need to close off little holes in your house and in your shed that you think a raccoon could get into. And, you know, it, you do have to keep your animals like chickens and things like that. They have to be protected at night and live in the coops that are strong enough to keep a raccoon out. I think that that is an important feature. Raccoons in certain environments are very, very abundant, uh, particularly if there's no predators like wolves and bobcats and things like that you can actually get quite a lot of raccoons living in a relatively small area. And so it's important to realize that, you know, we have to kind of protect our chicken coops from raccoons. Generally, raccoons do not prey on dogs and cats. That's not something that we have to worry about. But they do prey on ground nesting birds. And, and so something like a chicken would have to be uh, protected from raccoons. So that was the mask bandit, and they are an important part of our ecosystem as well. Well, that is our short list of creepy crawly misunderstood wildlife. Thanks, Jim, for your expertise and everybody for the conversation and stories told and walking us through the short list of animals and their critical role to the environment. We hope you guys can take away some of the information shared with you and tell others too. With all the negative connotations and attitudes towards these animals, it makes it more difficult to advocate for their protection and conservation. It's challenging to gain support on species that people can't relate to or have a connection with, like a cuddly, beautiful, widely celebrated creature. I hope you enjoyed listening to our flip on the narrative. So next time when you see one of these animals, instead of letting the negative feelings creep in or your fears start to scare you, let's focus on the good and grow our understanding on all that these creatures do for us. Thank you for listening to the National Conservation Training Center podcast series. If you have feedback, thoughts, or stories you'd like to share, contact us at nctc underscore podcast at fws.gov.